welcome to the latest episode of Film by Numbers from Outward Film Network. We are the film podcast in which the topic of discussion is dictated by the number of the episode. Thank you if you've listened to any of our episodes thus far. We're on all the main podcast providers and our back catalogue includes everything from film twists to James Bond to religion in cinema to football. My name is Phil Slatter and here to make a song and dance about things is the one and only Mr. David Woods. Evening, David. Good evening, Phil. And the hills are indeed alive with the sound of music. He's given you another little cryptic clue as to what this topic is going to be about. You can search Outward on Facebook, Instagram and our YouTube channel. And it is episode 14 and we've been a bit creative in the naming of this podcast. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is episode 14 and the subject is going to be musicals. It's a broad topic and we have roped in some help in the guise of author, critic, film historian and curator Pamela Hutchinson. We'll play an excerpt of our interview with Pamela later on and the full interview will be available as a separate podcast. Now just to get us started, uh, Dave, on musicals, am I right in thinking that that it's not your favourite genre of cinema? I have to admit I'm not. Sorry, Pamela. Uh, films like Grease, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Oliver, I have to admit, even Mary Poppins uh, for quite a long time, and even maybe now a little bit. And yeah, La La Land, I really hate La La Land. All these films have left me cold to some degree or another. And I've never been drawn to works like The Sound of Music or Meet Me in St. Louis, for example. So I appreciate some huge gaps <laughs> there and a few dislikes that are probably going to upset certainly diehard musical fans but possibly a lot of film fans as well i do appreciate though that musicals can be the most subversive and extraordinary forms of cinema because musicals can do what other genres can't in terms of expressing every single layer of cinema um you might look at say the 1933 film 42nd street which is most renowned for the choreography of Busby Barclay. I think he was an, an actor as well in the film. Um, but the director was actually Lloyd Bacon and um, Lloyd Bacon kind of gets forgot really because Barclay was so innovative in in, in changing dance routines in cinema. Um, I, I, I've i checked out a, li- a few bits and pieces here and there um, on YouTube and what have you and just how he creates this kaleidoscopic uh, choreography is is it's really visually astounding the patterns that are just constructed from the human form it transforms spatial relations um you know the movement of dancers between different levels um the the, the changes in speed it really is extraordinary and I, th- I think what he was most famous for was almost abstracting that dance routine and liberating it from the stage to move it to the cinema. And when you see something like Barclay's routines, I think you do understand how musicals can get into the feeling of not just characters, but also a, a time, a period, perhaps more, more satisfyingly and more comprehensively than most other film genres. I think you're alluding to the fact that they can be quite manipulative, which I think is something that we're going to come on to in, uh, later on in our discussion. In some respects, they're sort of they're deliberately trying to get you to sing along, and they're deliberately trying to get you to go along with the tune, aren't they? And uh, we'll talk about that a bit that with um, with the Greatest Showman when we come to that later on. But interesting sort of perspective. I mean, I guess it was something that you didn't have growing up. I mean, I kind of grew up with with movie musicals. My mum was a huge fan of musicals. I think that's how my mum and dad actually met because my dad was my grandpa was a, a Amdram theatre producer. We're talking things like Gilbert and Sullivan, the Mikado, and all that sort of thing, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Brigadoon. Um, so The Sound of Music was on regularly in our house. Uh, so I think to that end, 
I've got a little bit of a soft spot for them and I do enjoy quite a few musicals. There are many that I've, I've got great pleasure from. And one of the films that I've mentioned that gives us our title is Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh, if you don't know it, it's a 1954 MGM musical directed by Stanley Doonan. It tells the story of seven brothers who kidnap seven local women and take them to their home in the mountains in order to marry them. Uh, they cause a deliberate avalanche so the women can't be rescued, but they forget to kidnap the parson so they can't actually get married to them. I mean, it's a crazy setup. And as I said, I watched it a few times growing up and didn't really think anything of it. It was just a musical with some songs and dancing and choreographed and a bit of humour. But when you watched it a bit more recently and you relayed your thoughts to me, I kind of realised just what a, a crazy setup it is. I mean, it's it's remarkable, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, it was actually if not my grand's favourite film, it was through my gran I'd seen it. Um, but I, I, this for the first time going back, oh gosh, 10, 10 years, I think. I just, it is, it, I mean, it's really all of those things you've described. It, it's, I mean, it's Stanley Donan, of course, he directed Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. He, he really understands how to put energy into a scene. You think of so many sequences that aren't just musical numbers, they become part of the storytelling and visually are so extravagant. It's hard not to be entertained or dazzled, amazed by what you're seeing. But then you do have this crazy plot where it, it certainly played tongue in cheek. You do have to bear that in mind, but you, you certainly couldn't see this film being made today in this way. It's the masculinity is very brazen and the women are effectively kidnapped by the Ponsopy brothers and develop a sort of Stockholm syndrome towards these well, enforced husbands. Um, we've got songs like Bless Your Beautiful Hide. Mm, um, so, so it's an interesting way to uh, um, express your feelings for a woman. Um, but, you know, the barn raising sequence is exhilarating. I mean, Donan transforms this dance routine into a fight sequence, which is resplendent with exquisitely choreographed movement. And all around a barn that's just being built and then knocked down again to bookend the fight and the barn moves with this whole routine. It's brilliant. Um, and you, you, you have to acknowledge that there is definitely a nod and a wink at the audience with this absolutely balmy plot. And, you know, it's made in 1954. I think if you can accept certain things about how things were presented in that time, it, it's, it's actually quite a good fun film that somehow gets away with it. But um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it does have some eye popping sexual politics in it, you might say. And to be fair, there is a character within the film that does call into question the actions of the seven brothers, or, or I think the six brothers, because one of them is actually already married, and it's his wife that actually calls into actually calls him calls them up on what they've actually done. And yeah, it's, there is a bit of it. You can um, interpret it as it's men being shown the that their sort of brutish and loutish habits and mannerisms can be more refined through the influence of women. And it's ultimately about men and women as a compliment to each other, which is, it's, it's quite a nice uh, theme. So um, yeah, the, 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 again, there's always multiple ways to look at films, which is what makes discussing them so fascinating really. And especially this one, that's makes it so, so fascinating. We talked about musicals being manipulative and you mentioned bless your beautiful hide which has you know, questionable sexual politics and it's a bit of an odd song but it's kind of a really good song and you kind of self find yourself humming along to it and it's only when you stop and sit back that you realize well this is a bit choice and this isn't perhaps the best way to for a man to express his uh, appreciation of a woman but i suppose that taps into the idea of the the music's being being manipulative and 
making you feel things that maybe with a bit more hindsight or a bit more distance you wouldn't necessarily agree with yeah i mean i remember when i first heard that song and i thought hmm, okay that's a bit questionable next day i was singing it in the shower so <laughs> i guess uh, there you go really there's the manipulation in, uh, uh, in practice pretty and trim but not too slim heavenly eyes and just the right size simple and sweet and sassy as can be her beautiful hide Yes, she's the girl for me The interesting thing about musicals, I mean, that one was made in 1954, but if we go right back to the start of cinema and the history of silent film, musicals are almost older than talking pictures themselves because before we had dialogue, we had silent films, which were never silent and music was used to form the emotion. So we've had music before we've had dialogue. And then the very first talkie was actually a musical in the shape of the jazz singer. So the history of the musical is in many ways the history of cinema itself. And the whole name sound, sound stages comes from the fact that they couldn't record sound uh, out in the streets. So they had to build these stages to do that. Um, but the music has always existed and the silent film was never truly silent because we've always had those songs and tunes playing in the background. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you Pamela references in her article Georges Méliès and how his um how, how how the design of his films was a precursor for, say, the sequences of Barclay. It it's quite easy to see those patterns on on screen, that fluidity. Um you could even look at that fourth the very famous fourth wall break from the Great Train Robbery where the cowboy shoots into the screen. Um, which is a direct assault on the audience um, as a fourth wall break. And with the music track over that, that's, again, another precursor of how the musical can actually lift the audience into the story with a direct assault. And, and the assault in this case would be the emotion, the, the, the songs in a musical. Um, and of course, yeah, the jazz singer was the first musical. Um, I, I, I think there's some, I mean, f- as I understand it, it's not actually the first talkie. I think it is the first, it's certainly the first musical. And I think it was the first sound on disc feature, if I'm, if I've got that term right, but I think it was the same director of the jazz singer, Don Crossland, who made Don Juan in 1926, which actually contained a synchronized soundtrack of music and sound effects, but it was done through the Vitaphone, uh, which was a sound on film method, as opposed to the sound on disc and Warner brothers were quite, ahead of the other studios in, in this, in this time period, um, because they showcased a number of short sound films with the Vita phones. So there was a precedent for talkies, if you like, before, yeah, before the competition with sound on disc technologies, which is when, of course, the jazz singer was promoted very much as, as the first talkie. And as we discussed in our episode 12, when we talked about chamber pieces, there's a distinct link between cinema and theatre. And the same thing happens with the musicals, because some of these musicals we've talked about, such as The Mikado, HMS Pinafore, Gilbert Sullivan, they were performed on the works of Gilbert Sullivan. They were performed on stage long before cinema came along. So it's that natural progression that we now have musical cinema and have had for well over 100 years. Yeah, and that's why Barclay's so important, I think, in the... Um, in the history of the musical because by synchronizing 
his sequences to a pre-recorded soundtrack, he was able to transcend that lifelessness, which was bound up in theatrical backgrounds and that that you know you mentioned about the sound stages it's it, it, that studio bound lifelessness perhaps and he was his his shot making seems to me to be quite um involved with with all with all the um, performers um the camera's very close to um a lot of the dancers and the 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 aerial shots are in, you know they're incredible um, I, I believe, actually, in some conservative American states, when the studios re- released his, because I think he was, I think he made something like fourteen, or he was involved in fourteen productions between nineteen thirty-three and thirty-five as either a choreographer or as director. So he was making a lot of these, these incredible new, as it was then, musicals, and I think some of it was considered a little too racy for some conservative American states. The studios released toned-down versions to appease the dissenters. With something like Gold Diggers on 1933, it was quite a politically charged film. Um, um, I think there's a is it a song called "Remember My Forgotten Man." It's I, th- I think it was meant to be quite um, anti. It was considered uh, anti-American in some in some parties um, in some parts. Sorry, um, because it was fierce defence of the homeless and people who've been abandoned, really, after the war effort and what have you. And the film also had the number "We're in the Money." an iconic song um still you know i heard that being sung grown up uh, growing up you you still know it today that is really a testament to the influence of barclay's work i think but that's relevant to all musicals because i think that a lot of musicals can almost i don't want to say they can die by their songs but they can certainly soar by them uh, if you think of The Greatest Showman, which was a fairly recent, when I, I watched it, I didn't see it at the cinema. My wife and I watched it, I think, about six months after, or a year after it came out on, on DVD or Blu-ray or what have you. Uh, and we knew about two or three of the songs before we'd even seen the film because they were already in popular culture, and which is a real testament to the quality of the songs and how memorable they were. Similarly, when I first watched West Side Story, I was singing along to... Um, I like to live in America and I just met a girl called Maria because these were songs that I knew. And I was like, Oh, this is from that. I didn't quite realize that. And that's so important in a musical when you have great songs, that is what almost transcends anything else within the musical. And that was my problem with La La Land, which was a film that I, I didn't warm to. I know you were quite against it. I, I, I didn't dislike it massively, but the big problem I had with it was I found that the the, the music, the songs in it, I just didn't think were memorable. I, I think I described City of Stars as vaguely hummable, but the rest of it, I couldn't name another song from that film. And I think that for me, that was the problem with that film. And I know it was very popular and a lot of people liked it, but it's possible to know a lot of the songs from musicals before you've actually seen the musical or even know where they're from. Grease is another example. I remember having that at school discos before I'd even seen that film and I kind of knew the Summer Night song. Uh, it's it's interesting just how the music almost transcends the film. Yeah, I mean, Time Warp in Rocky Horror. Um, I think, well, that's definitely a song I knew before I I saw the film. And I guess there are many, many examples. And that could perhaps also explain why these days the jukebox musical has become so successful because you've got built-in songs that everyone knows now being told as part of a 
uh, a musical narrative, something like you know, Mamma Mia, those two massively successful films. We Will Rock You is not a film, but nonetheless, the music of Queen, Rocket Man, Elton John, Sunshine on Leith. There are many of them, uh, and there will be many more to come. And is that perhaps the reason that they're so popular and they're handy to filmmakers? Because you can, if you can get a narrative and weave in all these songs around it, then you've already already got your audience built in. And you've done almost done the heavy lifting. Mm. That some something like I wouldn't say Greece necessarily. Something like the Greatest Showman had to create these brilliant songs, put them into the film, and then the songs became popular, and the two went hand in hand. I think with the Greatest Showman, the soundtrack was the highest selling album of the year. The year after the film was released, oh, wow, which is I didn't just know a remarkable that. stat. But with the jukebox musical, you've already got the songs there. Your audience is there, and they know what's coming, and they're already going to be singing along to it. And that's why these films can be so popular. I have to admit, I haven't seen, if you can believe it, I've not seen either version of West Side Story, and there's a few very famous musicals I haven't seen. But when it comes to jukebox, jukebox musical, hearing familiar songs used to tell a, a unique story, um, Mamma Mia, Rocket Man, We Will Rock You, as you mentioned, or even a story about that artist, Rocket Man, Elton John, Mamma Mia, Abba, We Will Rock You, Queen, it's instantly appealing because of the familiarity. So I suppose you could argue it's a cheap cash-in. Um, if you take, say, Moulin Rouge from 2001, Baz Luhrmann's film, superficially, it's engaging. I, remember, I did actually see it at the cinema, and you, you recognise the songs. It's got an instant engagement factor from there. It's, you know, there's lots of colour and energy, and you know that you know the music, you're kind of humming along. But I did feel a bit empty, afterwards and it didn't stay with me and i felt okay. it lacked depth because it's ultimately a broad karaoke so i think that's the flip side of the jukebox jukebox musical and in a way moulin rouge does kind of sum up my experiences with musicals to date yeah so i had a very different experience with moulin rouge because i absolutely <laughs> loved it um but i what's interesting about something like moulin rouge is that it picks a lot of different songs from a lot of different artists so there's a bit more scope for the story but when you're making something like mamma mia or sunshine on leith you've almost got to fit the songs into the narrative which can be a problem because these songs although albums can often tell their own story an album in and of itself isn't going to be a narrative so with something like Sunshine on Leith, which is the proclaimers, you know at some point someone's going to receive a letter from America because you have to have that song in there and there are all these sort of plot points. And sometimes it can be woven in a bit, I suppose, I suppose forced in, um, shoehorned mm. in, um, or maybe they're just, I mean, Mamma Mia is a funny example because the story is, is so weird in many respects. I mean, it's about a, a girl who, on the eve of her wedding she doesn't know who her real dad is so she invites the three possibilities to her wedding and they try and decide through the medium of song who her dad's going to be it's, it's, it's very strange uh, and i think it's a film that's quite low on artistic merit in many respects but at the same time it is really good fun um, because it is like karaoke and you know all the songs and it's quite dancing and toe tapping and maybe as i said before it was quite manipulative and i, I did enjoy it um, but it can be a problem with that in terms of trying to find a narrative to fit these songs into, which Moulin Rouge perhaps didn't have. And what I thought was so skilled about Rocket Man was that it was 
the story of Elton John as a musical using the music of Elton John. And that was, that's why I thought it was so original and such a, a clever piece of work and far superior to Bohemian Rhapsody, which I don't classify as a musical. And I think this is a problem that, not a problem, but a lot of people think that musicals, I, I classify a musical as a film where characters are singing to each other, to one another. Uh, and yet things like the Golden Globes and other areas will say things like uh, Bohemian Rhapsody or Ray or Walk the Line are musicals. And I said, I'd say, no, they're not musicals. They are dramatizations of musicians. That doesn't make them musicals. Obviously, there is a close link and obviously the music is still very relevant. But to me, that's different. Whereas Rocket Man is a proper musical as well as being a biopic of, of Elton John. But I just find it, it, it fascinating how you, you know, you almost can pick any artist and you could, you write a musical around their work. Um, and is that why we're seeing them? Are they so popular? Because it is, you can tap into an audience that's already there, especially with uh, music as popular as, as Elton John and Abba. Well, I think you look at a musical like the Blues Brothers and by your definition, um, a dramatization of musicians in Alan Parker's The Commitments, which if I were to call it a musical, which I'm not going to, <laughs> but um, is, is, is an absolutely magnificent example of what can be done with a really urgent narrative and, if you like, the jukebox. You can see there's a real appetite there for blues music and blues music has served the musical genre very well, whether it's a dramatisation about musicians or whether, again, you mentioned Ray, Ray Charles, and... Also in 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 the musical Blues Brothers because um, it's it's full of also full of soul and um, blues stars. Uh, it's got a lot of humour in it as well. Um, whereas the commitments is about uh, white working class bands on 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 the poverty line who find their souls literally through soul music. Um, so I, th- I think having that familiarity um of of music of, of musical genre and as well as recogn- recognition of songs that you know already i think it does make for a compelling cinematic experience uh, music is very it is a bit of a it's a bit of a hard line direct to the emotions and fused with the visual capabilities of cinema it it can be quite an overwhelming experience you mentioned that you felt and I've mentioned that I felt Mamir and Moulin Rouge respectively um, possibly were a bit superficial but um, and you, you're kind of aware of the manipulation going on but it, if, if something's really making you feel does it does it matter I suppose is the question. On the sort of flip side of that when you do have a musical, sometimes do you think it's a problem that the music can potentially hinder it? I don't necessarily mean in the quality of it, but sometimes a story can be stopped in order for there to be a big musical dance number that doesn't carry on, doesn't continue the narrative. Do you ever find that a problem? Well, um, in discussing Barclay, you can see that when you are pausing the action to perform something as extraordinary as his kaleidoscopic images or his the different levels he, he he takes all the performers up on there's um you're, you're quite happy to have that pause but yeah i i think i think there's 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 definitely times i, th- I think all the musicals i referred to that i i haven't warmed to Greece jumps to mind 
particularly as something that stopped for a song. I, I, I'm sure lots of people will disagree with me on this and that's absolutely fine. But I was I always used to think, oh, here we go, we've got to stop for a song and the story's and the story's been paused. Maybe the story wasn't compelling enough. Maybe that's the problem for me. Um it's definitely I, I think it's definitely a valid one. And I think most musicals that don't receive the critical plaudits don't draw the audience it is it maybe maybe they're too guilty of stopping the action for songs that aren't quite what they should be they don't create quite the right emotional resonance in the audience well i think that greece does have a particularly weak story to be honest with you but it has great chemistry with um, Travolta and John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John and it has terrific songs that are so memorable and they're real earworms I mean, I remember when when Evita came out and there was a few people walking out uh, at the cinema saying that they got a bit fed up with all the singing, which is a bit strange when you're going to go and see a musical. Um, But I guess maybe they didn't realise that it was a musical because I don't think Evita was marketed as such. No, I don't think it was because I remember other people complaining about that, expecting more drama. Um, So, yeah, perhaps that's true. I mean, it does have Madonna in it, but then she was, as well as a singer, she was also an actress... Um, who I don't think did too much singing in in her in her films. So yeah, you could say she probably hasn't done much acting when she's been acting in her films either. But you know. with with perhaps the exception of Evita, I'd say I think I think she's actually she yeah, that does actually perform well in that film because she's got. But then was she cast because she's got the right voice? Mm. I, I forgive her quite a lot for Dick Tracy, to be <laughs> honest with you. One film I just uh, want to bring up as well is Terence Davis's, the, the now sadly late Terence Davis, uh, Distant Voices, Still mm-hmm. Lives, which was uh, came out in the late 80s and Mark Cousins goes into it in his brilliant documentary, The Story of Film. And that's what first introduced me to it. And I watched that film and I, I thought there were some moments in it that are just absolutely outstanding. It really, really, really good. The opening with the voices and the pitter-patter of the steps the pitter-patter of the feet up the steps the christmas sequence i just thought was spellbinding um pete postlethwaite is absolutely incredible in this film when you watch this film you understand why steven spielberg said that pete postlethwaite was the best actor in the world because i just think it's an absolutely remarkable performance and the christmas sequence is wonderful because he's he puts his kids to bed and they decorate the tree and it's wonderful and they're sitting around the table and then suddenly underneath all that domestic violence just suddenly rises up and he has this horrendous outburst and it really is quite frightening and it is quite a melodramatic film which you expect with Terence Davis but there's an awful lot of singing in it Uh, not in the traditional musical sense because there are characters and choruses singing along with someone playing the piano in the in the sort of musicals but you said it became a bit a little bit annoying uh, and I am inclined to agree with it with you on that and it detracted from the film slightly which is a shame because as i said there is so much brilliance in that film yeah i i very much agree with your points um i i think i mean i i never thought at the time of distant voices still i was a musical but i love that take on it. it it absolutely is one um it's got that same sort of british working class vibe that say once has uh, um where there's the irish busker and um i think is it a czech or polish immigrant he meets and um they 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 sing to each other writing each other love songs it's it's a really humble down to earth lovely lovely real world kind of musical with a fancy element but um 
Yeah, I think why this film didn't win me over was that melodrama you talked about and the the singing got very repetitious for me. It kept making the same point over and over of there being it's a hard life and you sing to mask the pain. Um, I mean, I feel Terence Davis is a filmmaker who really is touched by genius and his shot making. You, you alluded to how the camera just drifts through the house to create a sense of the memories coming alive in the present. For me, it's as good as Kubrick. But the songs don't do enough to tell the story for me other than in maybe an elliptical manner. They certainly capture the quiet misery behind the struggling lives of many people in that situation, certainly. And it has, I, I, I do think Davies's melodrama can be his strong point as well. And you mentioned how good Pete Postlethwaite is. Um, absolutely. Yeah. It's, you'd be saying the same as Spielberg after seeing that film, but um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting film to consider as a musical. And it, I think what it certainly does do is point to the um, the potential of musicals to show such different stories and different characters and also quite troubling themes. Musicals are quite a good way of presenting very weighty themes in a more, I wouldn't say lighthearted manner, but perhaps a more accessible way where it's it's digestible and you you go away thinking about it a bit later and the importance of them but you can enjoy the film in the immediate it's it's quite a unique genre in that sense i suppose the songs can get into your head as we've said and sometimes if those the, the substance of those songs is quite dark or quite disturbing that's what helps you to continue to think about it in the sort of coming days after you've watched a film in a way that a drama may have a more immediate impact that disintegrate slightly over yeah, time you think of skid row the song in little shop of horrors it's it's very memorable great great routines in it um really well directed choreographed and but it's it's all about the misery of poverty really at the heart of it and it's something you do reflect on but it doesn't stop you enjoying the film at the same time which might sound a little possibly a little perverse but um i think it's a really great way to um well, to add meaning to a story, I think everyone is going to the cinema ultimately to find meaning in a film, even if you are just going for entertainment. To find ent- to be entertained, there needs to be some meaning in what the filmmakers are doing. And I think if we can relate to things that outrage us, we love, that make us laugh, um, whatever it might be, I, th- I think that's always um, something you warm to as, a, as, as an audience member. Now it's time for an excerpt of our interview with Pamela Hutchinson. Now, Pamela is a writer, critic, curator and film historian who's written for a number of well-known publications. You're going to hear a short section of that and if you do want to hear the full interview, that will be available as a separate podcast. So here it is. It's us with Pamela Hutchinson. Pamela, welcome to Film by Numbers. Uh, Thank you for having me. The pleasure is all ours. Now, one question we like to ease ourselves into the topic with is what was your first experience of that said topic? So for you, how did you first get into movies? And more importantly and specifically, how did you get into movie musicals? Well, I was trying to think about what was the first uh, musical that I ever saw at the cinema. And I thought, well, no, you know, there were quite a lot of, you know, I remember them showing The Jungle Book, for example, at school. Um, I had quite a disastrous experience with that um, because I was too uh, 
silly, I think is the right word, to wear my glasses. So I really enjoyed the music, but the visuals, yeah, not so much for that. But I realised that actually, if I think about it, the very first film I saw in the cinema opened with a song and dance number. And I do remember being quite delighted by that and thinking that this was a great fun example of a film. Um, and then the film changed quite a lot. The first film I saw in the cinema was actually Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when I was about four years old. And I was quickly traumatised and really wished that I could have gone back to that song and dance number <laughs> to begin with. So I presume I have at some point always found a lot of comfort in the musical genre. In many ways, the musical is older than talking pictures themselves because silent pictures were never really silent. They had no dialogue in them, but they had music playing throughout to create mood and so forth. And even the first talkie, the jazz singer, was a musical. And you could say that musicals are maybe not older than cinema itself, but certainly older than the cinema that we know. Do you know what? I mean, if you think about um, you, you're completely correct. Uh, all those silent films that you're thinking of would have been designed to be played with music, you know, improvised or, or pre-planned music. A lot of them have dance sequences. A lot of silent films have dance sequences, have scenes with people charlestoning away in nightclubs, for example, or, or sort of long sort of dream sequences that work so well with music but even if you go further and further back when you think about the very first films where they were often shown would be as sort of entertainments as attractions among variety numbers so you'd have the song and dance come on you'd have a comic skit then you'd have you know here's some footage of the trains here's some footage of some people doing some comic skits in a garden so yeah music musical performance and the idea of a song or a dance as an entertainment completely integral to cinema from the very beginning and just bringing dave into the conversation where we came in with seven brides for seven brothers now we used to do film reviews on a friday of films that we'd watched that week i watched seven brides for seven brothers years ago when i was quite young my mum was a musical nut so it was on all the time a bit like the sound of music i never really thought anything of it i just thought it was a fun jolly musical from yesteryear and then Dave, you wrote your review and that's when the first time i really sat back and thought about the narrative obviously being much older being able to um, interact with it more and think about it more and I just thought in terms of story it's the weirdest film isn't it uh, yeah it was actually a favourite of my grand's and that's how I came across it and it, it, it's it's got to be one of the strangest film experiences I think I've ever had it, it's got quite extraordinary choreography uh, the scene where they're building the house for example um, I think in your article Pamela you referred to it as hyper masculine and that's very much evident <laughs> the um the almost jolly way they go around kidnapping these women who sort of develop a case of stockholm syndrome and then get upset that they get kidnapped again it's all very very disturbing when you pick it apart and you have songs like god bless your beautiful hide which is sang in quite an innocent chirpy way um you know this glorious happy-go-lucky objectification that's going on and yet around this you have, I, I can see why my gran loved the musical so much because it, it was very, well, it was, it was very energetic. Um, there's a really real dynamism in the choreography. You, you, you can't ignore that. It's, it's an incredible achievement of, of coordination. Um, but it, it's, it's, just, <laughs> it's just left me quite fascinated by it, really. Um, it is, it's worth seeing just for the sheer uniqueness of it, if nothing else. I mean, Pam, you're the historian. What was the take of it at the time? Were there any pushbacks on the narrative? I mean, 
I tell you, in case anybody hasn't um, doesn't know, the story of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers revolves around this sort of reference to the rape of the Sabine women in, in the classical literature and the idea that you could just basically hold some women hostage until they uh, agree to marry you. And when you talk about the pushback to the film, there's pushback to this idea within the film. You know, um, it's a very horrific idea. If I told you that that was something that was entirely endorsed by the characters in the film all the way through, uh, you know, that would really put you off. But of course, people do think within the film that that's quite ridiculous. And they talk about the sobbing women, uh, which would be the result of this kind of, you know, mass kidnapping. You know, I think that if you took Seven Brides for Seven Brothers deadly seriously, po-faced, you might be quite horrified. But it is, of course, a musical, and musicals are comedies, and they are sort of having a bit of fun with this. It's not meant to be taken too, too seriously. That's not to say that a lot of films made in 1954, Shane, for example, you know, or, or, or that kind of era, don't have very aggressive, regressive sexual politics, uh, which sort of reflect what was going on in society at the time. But I think we need to remember that when we're watching Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and we're constantly saying, well, that's a ridiculous idea and that's actually quite ludicrous. You know, people in 1954 were not stupid either and they would have been thinking that, you know, the idea is made ridiculous in the film. Um, and that's why, you know... Do you think that's maybe where some of the, or I guess, innocence for maybe want of a better word comes in? <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe we sort of think that people aren't as smart as we are quite a lot you know oh, I, you know, I agree i think there is a knowing wink in the film it's just yeah, it's, it, it, it's i i mean for me i saw the funny side of it and i i felt like i was in on a joke which was perhaps what and there is a lot of humor in the film you to at the, the moment when, there is there when is. the baby's born and he, he faints he says i'm an uncle and faints it's just it's a very silly moment and quite a funny one as well so yeah, <laughs> it, it does have that side to it if you think about the best sequences in the film you know they're not ones where people have long discussions about the best way to sort of steal a woman they're that they are like the barn raising sequence which as you say is absolutely fantastic michael kidd's choreography is stunning and what's clever about it that and the wood chopping is it's taking something very masculine and turning it into that thing that we maybe don't think of as traditionally masculine which is dance and the musical so the the sexual and Bert Lancaster plays it with such a wink in his eye, doesn't he? Sorry. Yeah, exactly. There are so many layers to it, and that's what you're always enjoying. I mean, that's a lot of brides and a lot of brothers for you to get to grips with. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost a narrative that you could fit into a horror film, I suppose, in some respects. Um, but like you say, it, then, it, it works on so many other levels. Yeah, and then it might be more worrying. Yeah, perhaps. Absolutely. Um, I'm not suggesting that I would go for a sort of shot-for-shot uh, shot remake in 2024, but uh, I think I think we can give the audiences of 1954 a little bit more credit than to suggest that they went home and went, well, that is how I'm going to meet my sweetheart. And that is the thing with musicals. There's that fantastical element where people spontaneously burst out into choreographed songs. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't happen in, in my life too often. Yeah, no, I mean, we're talking about stories that are always a bit larger in life, larger than life, uh, a little bit extreme. We're talking about people who get to such strange emotional places that it does seem natural for them to dance and to sing. And I think that sometimes when we critique older musicals for being problematic, I mean, often sometimes, the, you know, with good reason, um, 
it's partly because we get a bit embarrassed by the musical and that's definitely something that you can see in contemporary musicals a very self-conscious style where it's like we want to be a musical but we want to show that we're a little bit edgy with the format that we are trying to do it in a more kind of lo-fi way that we're trying to do it in a way that kind of puts us to one side of the genre to suggest that we're not we don't fully endorse the idea that this stage is going to go back and back and back and everyone's suddenly going to be wearing sequins which is you know in many ways a shame yeah i think i was just going to say perhaps for all genres maybe movie making has got a bit too self-conscious at the moment um maybe some of that romanticism has been lost and it's what we love about movies and it'd be nice to see that brought back a little bit what about yourself Pamela? just tell us a little bit about your your book on on the red shoes which is obviously fantastic dance numbers in that well so the red shoes i mean so anyone who's a musical fan and a silent film fan is bound to love the red shoes it's just inevitable I have made no secret of my enjoyment for this masterpiece, the the Technicolor masterpiece that is The Red Shoes. And I was so lucky to be asked to write this book. It was sort of intended to come out as it has done uh, this autumn uh, in time for the 75th anniversary of the film and also the BFI's kind of epic Howell and Pressburger season that they're having, which is going nationwide. So it's been a real honour to write about it and it's been really fun to dig into the film because... It has this spectacular quality. It has a very strong storyline, a horrific dark ending that has traumatised generations. And so much has been written about it. So I had to find a way to tell a new story about the, the film and talk about its production and talk about its meaning, uh, hopefully in a fresh way. I'm lucky enough to have some beautiful pictures in the book. It's been It's been really great. And all the time I was writing the book, if I told people what I was working on, I heard this noise, which was like a... <gasps> gasp of like delight and horror at the same time and that was very exciting hearing people's reaction and, and their strong feelings about the film and now I'm going out and I'm doing panels and introductions and talks on the film I'm getting even more of that uh, so I'm, I'm feeling like everyone's collective passion for the red shoes is swirling around me at all times which is a delightful place to be and like you say it's, it's very dark as well yeah, mm-hmm. very very dark and and influential you think of something like aronofsky's black swan and there's obviously connections there um yeah. and these films that almost timeless i was going to say the intensity of the the central performance um i mean I, I i was astounded by the length but the intensity it's the most intense number musical sequence i think i've ever seen in film and it really it's a bit hard to explain my emotions to that sequence. Um, I, I liked The Red Shoes very, very much. Um, I think it's an incredibly... Oh, it's, it's, it's just a film that really knows what it's doing and it's not afraid to do something very unexpected tonally with that kind of material. Um, and I'm a big fan of Black Swan, which I think is definitely taken from red shoes but um, heavily heavily influenced um but it did make me although i did still appreciate black swan a lot and like it a lot i i find it kind of the pulp version of red shoes (laughs) yeah so it's quite um as you say it raises lots of difficult feelings that the central 17 minute ballet sequence in the red shoes it almost feels abusive doesn't it it captures that it's so difficult relentlessness that dancers put themselves under physically 
Absolutely. But you know, the only way to process those difficult feelings, David, is to buy my book, which is available from all good bookshops okay. and will offer you the catharsis you need for merely, I don't know, twelve ninety nine, yeah. something like that. Uh, I'm sure you can get a special offer. Twelve ninety nine and I can get the catharsis I need. It might be less, I think. It's incredible. <laughs> Such good value. I know. You say all good bookshops. It's available online, I presume, from um, the British yeah. Film Institute and Amazon. Be it all everywhere that you could possibly expect it to be available from. And the BFI are actually at the Central London venue going to have a Red Shoes exhibition opening soon and it will be available to buy at the gift shop there. But it's available in their bookshop now, I think. So, uh, yeah. Yes, you you can almost not avoid buying it. That's the problem. You can't <laughs> avoid it. Yeah. I'm not sure if I haven't already bought it while we've been on this call. Maybe I have. Probably, probably it's like if you've uh, yeah, got an Alexa, they've probably already. Oh no, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, they've heard what we were saying, and um, <laughs> but yeah, no, so, I mean, we wish you all the very best with that. I mean, you, you, your sort of your passion and love for the for the film and and the the genre and film in general is, is obviously really come across in, in this interview. It's been absolutely wonderful um, chatting this this subject with you. I mean, what, what are you sort of working on next apart from promoting your book? The, well, the idea of writing another one, I'm guessing, is a is a bit on the on the horizon at the moment um well you know i've got lots of things that i'm working on but one of the things i'm working on at the moment is i'm researching a, a film critic who was one of the most influential film critics in britain during actually the sort of golden age of hollywood period she famously loved the red shoes apart from the ending and uh, almost killed michael powell's career so that's ca lejeune i'm uh, researching and she's uh, she's proving herself to be very fascinating at the moment David and I, we, we like to think we're, we're we're quite knowledgeable and quite well versed in film, and then we have someone such as yourself on, and we sort of end these um, calls think they're feeling both a lot more knowledgeable about films, and at the same time a lot less knowledgeable about films because we realise how much there is that we don't know. Um, which is all you need um, is a few good yeah, box it's, sets, it's, a few good just, Gene Kelly box sets, and your life yeah. will be so much better. I know. I mean, the amount of films referenced <laughs> in your article, I thought, God, I know this of this film, but I haven't seen it, and. Yeah, it's, I mean, I haven't seen Cabaret or Sound of Music ever. Um, I can't say I'm bothered about Sound of Music, but I feel I should watch Cabaret and, you know. Cabaret you would love. If you are if you like the darker side, mm. you'd, you've got to see Cabaret. Mm. Well, Phil has, performance so, is amazing. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, I've seen it, yeah. Then that'll be your um, next podcast. <laughs> Sound of Music was the one that was on... Uh, on rotation in my in my house and my, my mum I think it's one of my mum's favourite films so I've seen that plenty of times um, yeah but thank you ever so much Pamela it really has been fantastic um, we may we, we may we would love to have you back on maybe in the future if you're if you're up for it when we come on to some other other topics and other subjects other um, mathematical topics that could be <laughs> we, we kind of go everywhere with it don't we, we I mean do. we're, so we're 14 um, you know we're, we're gonna have to be creative with the numbers I think aren't we but yeah, we, when you get to the 400 blows, call me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, we, we yeah it should be there in January. Episode 2001. <laughs> yes. Episode 2001 will be on Kubrick. So, so that's the, the joke we always make. I'm not sure we'll ever get there. We might have to try and get to Kubrick before then. <laughs> Thank you ever so much, Pamela. It really has been fantastic talking to you. We'd love to have you back on the podcast in the future when we come on to many other topics. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. So that was Pamela Hutchinson. And as I said, you can listen to the full interview as a separate podcast available wherever you got this one. Now, Dave, how much did you enjoy that interview? Yeah, very much. Um, I recommend people go and check out Pamela's 
article all that glitters the restless art of the movie musical which is on the bfi website um and her book on the red shoes is out now as well um so i'm looking forward to getting my copy of that uh certainly enjoyed talking about paula pressburger's the red shoes with pamela it's an extraordinary film with an extraordinary central sequence um again showing that potential musical and i have to say speaking to pam she just has made me look at the musical in a very different way i've been quite open about i've had quite a (laughs) a difficult relationship with musicals over the years and um, she's really made me reconsider how i see them and i i'll make a promise to her that i will watch cabaret And yeah, I mean, we're extremely grateful to Pamela for giving up her time. Just just to share one part, I mean, obviously she's extremely busy. Um, she's writing for a number of publications and promoting her book. And we, we were doing our interview and we finished about half past nine at night and we were still sort of just chatting after. She said, oh, do you mind if I help off? I haven't had my dinner yet. And I just thought, what what a wonderful testament to her as a person that despite the fact that she's got all this going on, she still gave up time for our little podcast um, and sacrificed having a dinner till late at night. So fantastic. Um, and do check out her work because, yeah, she was brilliant, brilliant company and um, another highlight for us doing this, uh, doing this yeah, podcast. On the subject of the red shoes, uh, that, that leads us nicely to that. Um, again, we, you were talking before that about the dark nature of, musicals because we do tend to think of them as musicals and musicals we do tend to think of them as being light-hearted and dancing and swirling and you know happy and love stories but as we discussed with pamela there is a real dark side to them and certainly if you think of something like sweeney todd and the red shoes borderline musical but certainly in terms of the dance sequences it certainly feels that way so there are a lot of uh there is, there is a lot of darkness in in musicals that you don't initially think is there yeah i mean i've not seen it but um i think darren lynn bowsman directed repo the genetic opera um oh gosh a few years ago now but i've not seen it but it, it's um i think its central theme is about people stealing organs in a dystopia to harvest on the black market um with, with songs they can bring weightier themes to your attention in an expressionistic way so uh looking at you know using um using the image to find what's what's within little shop of horrors for example muses on class struggles and domestic abuse even but these themes don't become a lecture through the musical interludes um yet the musical element doesn't make the themes incidental either it highlights them and it presents an accessible lens to view them through. We, do, we don't just go to watch a film because it's entertaining. We want to know how we feel about things and how we relate to characters and situations. And Little Shop of Horrors does this very well. So does Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark, which I've, I've only been able to watch once. It is incredibly sad. Um, but what an examination of... <sighs> A hard-edged film it is one examination of the hard edge of the facade, the facade of community of uh, struggling in life. Can you really trust your neighbours? Who are they? And you know, Bjork's wonderful as Selmish captures the passion of singing to escape drudgery. Um, I mean, the, the storyline is she's on the verge of blindness and she struggles to make ends meet for herself and her son, who's inherited the same genetic disorder and needs an expensive operation. And it's Selma's love of musicals that help her escape from life's troubles. Um, and how it, how Von Trier fuses that with this, the surrounding she's in. She's a factory worker, for example. It's got a, it's got a certain tactile element with its environment that 
I've not really seen before in a musical. And as incidentally, uh, Cabaret's Joel Grey played the Master of Ceremonies in in Cabaret. He actually also features in Dancer in the Dark as a character called Aldrich Novi. So a little bit of a link to classical musicals there. Um, But um, it's an astonishing film and um, very different from most other musicals as well. And then you have something like Tim Burton's Sweeney Todd, which is a lot more Dario Argento than it is Rodgers and Hammerstein. And thematically quite dark but just as a narrative i mean it's, it's a slasher film it's a slasher horror and it's almost johnny depp channeling is in a david bowie i think with with some of the some of the singing and it kind of works whether the songs are quite as memorable as 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 they need to be i'm not entirely convinced but nonetheless i did think it was a, a an excellent film um and yeah Another one is that we mentioned in the interview with Pamela, Meet Me in St. Louis. There's the, the scene where Judy Garland goes and smashes all the snowmen and sings Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which we take to be a happy song because it is about having a merry little Christmas. But there is a dark undertone because essentially the song is saying, enjoy Christmas now because in the future we don't know what's going to come and it might not all be happy and cheerful. So again, it's a not a bleak outlook on life, but a perhaps a realistic one. Um, that is everything isn't always going to be happy and rosy in the future so not so much a really dark element but that film is quite a melodramatic one i would certainly say but a good one nonetheless and um, very entertaining because you've got something like the trolley song which is everyone's up and tapping along but then a more thought-provoking moment uh, as i said with have yourself a merry little christmas but i mean sometimes you have films that aren't musicals but have musical elements as well don't you like sort of holy motors or slumdog millionaire where you have the jai ho sequence which again not a musical because the characters aren't seen but you do have all the characters dancing along at the end so would you classify either of those as a full musical or just having those sort of touches of them and why do they have them i would um I, th- I think it is that thing of if characters are singing to each other about something rather than just performing a song, I think there is a musical element there that you can interpret as it being a musical film. I mean, musical interludes in films, even when it's just in the soundtrack, can be incredibly effective. Um, they, they, I mean, music really breaks the fourth wall and brings the audience almost forcibly inside the movie story. Um, I think of a film like Antonio Campos's Simon Killer from 2012, where there's there is music used, but the, the set, it's quite sparing. And you think of a long wide shot where Brady Corbett's just dancing. It, it would just be a fairly incidental, perhaps dull long shot, but it's played over LCD sound. It's played with LCD sound systems. Dance yourself clean, and it stirs up this like I say, fairly tame shot into something aggressive, unpleasant and dangerous and really speaks to the nature of the character. Um, and similarly, what would the ending of Claire Denis' Beau Travail from 1999, what would that be without Corona's Rhythm of the Night, which is a cheesy pop song, but it transforms Denny Levant's final expression of life into something exhilarating. And as a counterpoint to um, music um, being so impactful in that way and creating that relationship with story, you can think of, I don't know if you remember the 2012 film Silence, which was it's a small Irish film directed by Pat Collins. And that's got, a, I, I don't remember there being any music and it's a long time. Well, I think I actually saw it back in 2012, it's about 10 years since I've seen it. But um, that removes any kind of excess in terms of musical 
numbers or musical soundtrack and you're you're left very much with raw sound and it demonstrates that very rawness of living when there is no music in your life so to speak one thing that people often on a super super superfluous level say about musicals is that they find them unrealistic because people don't actually sing to each other in the way that they do in film and people don't all dance along but i was thinking about this after our interview with with pamela and i actually thought actually that happens a lot more than we realize if you think of people going to any collective gatherings be it a sports event a concert people in churches at um, music gigs anything like that and even in cinema with sing along sound of music sing along the greatest showman so in many ways music is actually the musical is perhaps more realistic than we might like to think mm. um when you really dive down into it yeah just a sort of interesting thought no, i that. mean uh, yeah well <laughs> um it's so true and well you you think about well think how well buffy the vampire slayer did that episode once more with feeling which is such a famous episode now where it's done entirely with the characters singing literally everything and it, it is an exaggeration of how we how we do come together to sing in 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 life and there's a reason that episode's so popular because it does reflect what we do at you say football matches concerts churches wherever it is at that exaggeration of reality when film unlike theater requests a certain pack with real life and and film is strange from that point of view because really it's just an escapism or fantasy but it is a medium that does rely on a distinguishable sense of the tangible so i think for the musical to either work or or to fail for an audience member, it's got to have some sort of pact with reality, even if it isn't an expression of reality. So maybe that's what people mean. Um, you Again, I gave the example of once. It's a very real world setting and the songs are done like a busker would sing or independent musicians, you know, getting together just to jam would do. Um, and yet it becomes an expression of something that is very deep and it is it is a fantastical thing, but it's done in a way that you can buy it. And maybe maybe that's the point. Maybe you have to be presented it in a way where you say this could almost be conceivable or perhaps it has to go full on outlandish at the start and say, I'm inviting you in on this joke from the beginning. So may, maybe it's that. And on a sort of darker note as well, we talk about, manipulative nature of people joining in with songs that they maybe disagree with there's been a lot of discussion about tragedy chanting at football matches and i I guess in some respects people can be in at a a football match or a similar event when people are singing things uh, fairly appalling things or things that are maybe slightly off kilter um but because everyone's singing in it and people know the tune they might get swept up with it and join in with it and then afterwards think actually ooh shouldn't have done that but again it it taps into that manipulative nature sometimes of music and sometimes of rhythm it's a dark idea but it's yeah i mean it it almost harks back i think to your point on bless your beautiful hide doesn't it you you change the lyrics and the tune's great and it's the tune perhaps that gets you but you start analyzing what you're singing after you're gripped and manipulated by that tune Mm. and there is a darker side there and, and Cabaret is another one when there's um, Tomorrow Belongs to Me. I mean, it's, it's a barnstormy moment. Hairs on the back of the net and 
wow, this is terrific. But then you realize that they're actually singing about the rise of Nazism. And again, you sit back and you think this is, well, actually, I don't agree with that. But what a sort of powerful song it was and because of the way it was performed. And again, the manipulative nature of music music in in a lot Mm. of respects. Yeah, and and well satirized. Mel Brooks is the producer's uh, springtime for Hitler, of course. It's done in the context of performing Absolutely. a flop play, but um, you know it, it's almost a satir- satirization of, of um, that idea. <laughs> I'm going to be singing "Springtime for Hitler" in my head, I think, for the rest of the night. <laughs> what a what a sort of again not a song you'd sort of sing out loud, but again you have to have that one in context, definitely. Um, but yeah, well, well, that's br- brilliant! A brilliant comic song uh, in a brilliant comic film as well. Springtime for Hitler and Germany. Deutschland is happy and gay. We're marching to a faster pace. Look out, here comes the master race. Um, have you ever been on that as 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 the primary filmmaker between the two of us? Have you ever been tempted to write or conceive of a musical? Is it ever something that's coming sure. to your head at all? Um, yeah, I, I would. I, I don't know if I could pull it off. I I certainly can't write music. I can I can tell you that much. But yeah, musical comedy in the vein of say the producers would be God. It'd be terrific fun to conceive and execute. Um, but you know, as I say, maybe I need to reassess my relationship with musicals and actually watch a few more. But um, yeah, I, I, do, I do find the jukebox musical quite appealing. I, I've seen the um, the raw power of music being used in a story, like in the commitments. Um, it would be wonderful to work with music in some capacity, whether it is a dramatization of performers or whether it is a straight musical. Um, but I, I do love what Mel Brooks does. Mel Brooks would be a big influence on me getting involved in something like that should i ever get the chance in the future um and i think it would be really fun to work with um a choreographer and and a uh, and a songwriter to produce some really good comedic numbers um and if i made anything anywhere near as good as <laughs> the producers i'd be quite happy with that i think what about serious music? Yeah, I, 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 I think um, it'd be fun to do something really abstract, something really different. Um, I think working in the horror genre is quite interesting, or maybe even the science fiction genre would be quite interesting for the musical. Um, I think there's um, there's always topics in the world that you can explore um, through music, and and maybe the best way to show the pain we all feel collectively at a lot of things is just through the universal power of song. So I think it's something I would um, absolutely consider. I guess if you're not a musician mm. or a songwriter, then it can be very difficult to write an original musical. You could potentially conceive of a jukebox mm. musical. I mean, I had an idea about, about one, but it was all it's all pieced together with different songs that I know uh, woven into a narrative, not by one specific artist, but well-known songs. Um, one film I just want to mention actually is is Hook, because here's an interesting thought. Steven Spielberg says he he still doesn't like Hook. He, he wants to watch it again because he's still still not convinced by it, and it's kind of considered one of his lesser films. But he said 
John Williams actually wrote eight songs and he was going to do it as a musical. But then at the last minute, Spielberg said he got cold feet and made it as a straight dark drama. And I just thought that's a very interesting idea because would that film have been successful? Um, or I don't know how successful commercially Hook was, but would it have been successful critically and amongst fans if it was a musical? Mm-hmm. With John Williams writing the songs, I mean, you, know, you don't get many better composers than him. No, you don't. Um, the great unmade Spielberg, maybe. Yeah. Um, although he did, he did <laughs> do West Side Story, I mean, yeah, so he's not was... averse to taking on the musical. Established, yeah. admittedly, but um... but maybe would it? Um, I, I always think that the the key problem with Hook was Peter Pan is a boy that never grows, grows up, and here's a sequel where he's <laughs> yeah. grown up. Kind like, of, well, that's yeah. That doesn't quite work. Really the, not the point of the character. Yeah, I think that pretty um, much kills but, it on its feet doesn't it really but mm, it's yeah. not good maybe that's maybe there is a an interesting film there and maybe i don't know whether we'll ever see that film will ever see the light of day i can't imagine anyone wanting to remake hook as, as a musical but just just something that popped into my head is an interesting idea But um, we do like to end with films that we do like, recommendations. Um, we've all got three musicals that we're going to recommend to you. What's your What's your first choice, Dave? Okay, so my first choice um, has got to be Little Shop of Horrors from 1986. Um, I've mentioned previously that um, Frank Oz's riotously entertaining horror comedy considers themes of class segregation and the desperation of living on the breadline, not to mention a really disturbing spectre of domestic violence, but it serves up memorable songs, makes the whole thing a hummable toe tapping delight somehow amidst all that. And I think it is down to Oz's skill that this is just pulled off with a plum. It does have a great cast. You have Rick Moranis and Ellen Green at the height of their powers. You have Steve Martin, one of my favorite comedy performers ever in a fantastic cameo as a sadistic dentist and Bill Murray as his masochistic patient, which try and beat that for a comedic scene it's absolutely brilliant uh everyone's Mm. fully in on the knowing humor levi stubbs perfectly voices audrey too and there's got to be a big shout out to to tashina arnold michelle weeks and tisha campbell as the chorus leading the audience through the story uh boasting incredible voices to boot and they deliver their songs with great comic timing and has a little bit of that you know uh greek play um the greek chorus uh, has a little bit of uh, that his, um, historical edge to it. Um, it was based on Roger Corman's original B-movie, The Little Shop of Horrors from 1960, and it's one of the rare remakes that takes the original material and arguably improves it. And this again suggests the potential of the musical to speak most directly to the movie audience. So Little Shop of Horrors, my first pick. It's an absolute riot, great fun. You must see it. My first recommendation is one we've already discussed briefly, um, maybe an obvious choice, but it's uh, Moulin Rouge. Now, it was the first musical I saw in the cinema, uh, and I actually remember it really blew me away. 
because I'd never seen anything quite like it. And I think as a piece of cinema is therefore hugely influential because it's one of the first jukebox musicals uh, that brought in so many different songs together into a not entirely original story. You have to concede that and the sort of themes of love is all you need are, are quite on the nose, but there are elements that don't work. Richard Roxburgh is a little bit one dimensional or his character is, but the way it transcends humor. I mean, Jim Broadbent singing like a virgin is just fantastic to, more darker elements i thought the dark the dance of roxanne was uh, absolutely brilliant and definitely my personal favorite moment from the film it taps into a lot of the elements of musicals we've been discussing and i think what it did for me personally was it tapped back to those musicals that i watched growing up like the sound of music which features prominently as well as a lot of the music that i really enjoy such as the beatles so i understand the criticisms uh, and maybe i was a little bit manipulated by it but i've watched it several times since and it is a film i really enjoy and because the music is so good and i think the performances are excellent but baz lerman's uh, moulin rouge is my my first recommendation outside it may be raining but in here it's entertaining. <laughs> what's your uh, your second dave so my second pick is possibly my favourite musical ever, unabashedly. It's because oh, yes. of my admiration for David Byrne, who was the former lead singer of Talking Heads. They're my favourite group ever. So this was Byrne's only narrative feature film made in 1986. He did direct a couple of other music videos and a documentary on voodoo. Um, but this is True Stories, and it's such a unique, joyful, almost innocent movie that has a, a real wit to it though behind all that um it's crammed full of brilliant brilliant songs written by burn and talking heads so a talking heads musical if you want to call it that and they did actually re-record the songs eventually on their true stories album uh, the storyline is quite loose, but it follows Byrne, who's playing a narrator complete with a massive cowboy hat, who travels to a small Texan town on the eve of the state's sesquicentennial, and he proceeds to meet all these strange characters who inhabit the town, which is called Virgil. And chief among the characters is an endearing bachelor called Lewis Fine, who's played with great sympathy and sweetness by John Goodman, who's looking for love, and this culminates in his plea to the heart through the tune People Like Us, um, this is a film that provides such a warmth and comfort within me. It's so inventive, unusual and amusing. The brilliant set pieces such as John Ingalls' Preacher warning his congregation about the dangers of media manipulation and capitalism in Puzzling Evidence or the spellbinding Papa Legba, a voodoo incantation to bring love and success, which is hauntingly sung by Pop Staples. And there are great comedy moments such as the dinner scene at the Culver's house and... Just, um, you know, for a bit of movie trivia, Tito Lariva, who some people might remember from Desperado and from Dust Till Dawn. Yeah, he also provided some of the soundtracks to those films. He performs Radiohead, which incidentally is where the band Radiohead took their name from. In my opinion, Byrne is a renaissance man in the truest sense. He's a complete artist. Uh, he genuinely innovates. He offers new perspectives on what, whatever medium of art he chooses to explore, whether it was music or photography, and in this case, film. And... As I say, it's such a shame it was the only foray really into feature filmmaking um, outside of documentaries because True Stories is like no other movie. It's like no other musical. This is creativity at its finest and its brilliance is underscored by its heart because 
This is a movie that carries a simple message of love and appreciation for all around you, to love the world and its quirks, and to remain open and curious always. So my second pick, True Stories. My second recommendation is... (laughs) Uh, the Beatles musical that nobody watched, uh, Julie Taymor's 2007 Across the Universe. It's a personal favourite in our house. It wasn't a huge success financially, but with 34 Beatles tracks woven into a narrative, it sees Jim Sturgis as Jude. You can see where that's going. Follow a similar journey to the Beatles themselves as he moves from his native Liverpool to America in the 1960s. Uh, musically, it's fantastic, but there are some interesting story choices that examine the anti-war protests, and it's a real visual treat uh, a bit of a hidden gem, um, certainly a superior film to Danny Boyle's more popular Yesterday, which again isn't a musical, it's a drama about a musician or a comedy about a musician and a film that I, I liked but fairly forgettable. But Across the Universe I think has a lot more depth. Also features uh, Eddie Izzard singing For the Benefit of Mr. Kite and Bono singing um, I Am the Eggman, I Am the Walrus, I Am the Eggman. So a bit mad as well as it goes down into the elements of, of drug taking that obviously was part of the Beatles history. Um, my recommendation, second one across the universe. Um, not enough people saw that. And I'm certainly, if you're a Beatles fan, I would highly recommend that to uh, you to go and seek that one out. Um, what's your third day across the universe? An interesting one. It's one I'm aware of, but passed up on. So I think you've convinced me, Mr. Slatter to go and, well, first of all, chastise myself for missing out on it and go back and check it out. <laughs> Sounds very interesting. Even even, even um, Pamela hadn't, hadn't seen it, which was, um, it, it kind of came and went. I think it, it did, was nominated yeah. for one award for a song, but um, yeah, I think it lost quite a bit of money. It is a bit long. It's, I think it's about two and a quarter hours, mm. um, but there's there's a lot to it. And obviously you know, the music is, is obviously brilliant. Mm, well, I will... Yeah, I'll get to it, sort myself out, which I could say about quite a lot of musicals, to be honest. So I've gone for Had To Be, Singing In The Rain from 1952 for my third pick. I know it's extraordinarily famous um, and the obvious classic musical, but I actually only watched it for the first time in the past year, I think it was. And I previously thought it just looked like a cheesy, sentimental film. How wrong was I? I mean, I've got films wrong in the past, but this is a whip-smart, energetic and completely enjoyable experience in anyone's book. Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor and Debbie Reynolds are just perfect in the lead roles. Their interplay is riveting, full of zest. And what I really loved about this was it examines the transition from silent cinema to talkies with such warmth, wit and insight. Um, It really does have some great sequences of the actors and the crew struggling to comprehend how to use a microphone on set and it shows the real conundrums that faced film crews um, when they were and studios as they were welcoming in this new era with a lot of suspicion and skepticism we we can relate it to our experiences in our lifetime of um, the digital era and the forthcoming AI era which is upon us really and we have a lot of things to go through with that of course but um I think this really captures the fun of our confusion and it it makes it reassuring while also hitting everything with just such a good sense of humour, which you have to thank, you know, Stanley Doan and Gene Kelly do such a good job of uh, putting the mood right in this picture. I mean, it, like I say, it's so funny. Moses supposes what, what a number that is. And I was like, this is really cheesy. And I found myself chuckling within about 10 seconds. I just couldn't help it. 
and it's an utter, utter delight in general. Never mind the iconic singing in the rain sequence when Don Lock, Lockwood, is played by Gene Kelly, realizes he's in love with Debbie Reynolds's um, Kathy Selden, and the visual humor is 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 just very, is just excellent, as I say. And it's everything a good movie should be. It's funny, dramatically taunt, emotionally warm, it's intelligent, um, and it's an utter, utter joy from beginning to end with... We talk about how innovative the musical can be. There's such an in- incredible intertextuality with the reference of a film within a film within a film. Um, yeah, of course, we've seen this done, done in other genres, but the musical really shows how that intertextuality can show such a change in the films within the films within the films. Um, I think it's, we see, you know, for example, how the dueling cavalier becomes the dancing cavalier. So it's, it's an extraordinary film intellectually. It's an extraordinary film from a point of view of cinema history and how it examines that. And it's an extraordinary film from an entertainment perspective as well. And about the nature of, star power as well absolutely still relevant to today yeah and uh, Um, or is it is star power still as strong as it was sort of 20 years ago and yeah that's that it uh, really is terrific just singing the raid i mean yeah like you say it's one of those films that you think is just one of those fluffy musicals when you get into it oh wow this is really an interesting film about the the history of cinema and about perhaps the key moment in cinema third and final recommendation is london road now this is a very odd film uh, it's rufus norris's 2015 docudrama musical um it's an adaptation of a national theater production set in ipswich in 2006 december 2006 when a serial killer was on the prowl uh, which is a true story uh, many of you may remember it many of the lyrics and the subsequent songs are taken from interviews with residents of the titular road and their reactions to the events going on around them and the media speculation that closed in on this fairly small area. Uh, It's an original and interesting take on a very dark story, but it does end with some uncomfortable truths. Um, The residents are actually pleased with the long-lasting effect of the murders. Prostitution was a problem in the road, but after the events, some prostitutes quit and others were given the help they needed. And it does end with some quite eye-opening revelations from the residents that you actually think, well, I, I can actually see where you're coming from, and that might be a slightly uncomfortable truth, but... It is a truth nonetheless. Uh, it's an unusual, bold and interesting film. Uh, features Olivia Coleman and Tom Hardy. And that is Rufus Norris's, again, not that well widely seen, but London Road. Um, very different and well worth checking out. And I think that brings us nicely to the end of episode 14 of Film by Numbers. Thanks for downloading. Uh, we do have, hope you have enjoyed. Uh, as I said, you can listen to the full interview with Pamela Hutchinson uh, as a separate podcast wherever you got this one. Uh, you can search Outward on Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. 
And you can also watch the feature film Night Lens, written and directed by the very talented David Woods. That was produced by Outward Film, and that is on Amazon Prime, where you can rent or buy it. Or if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, I believe, Dave, you can now watch it for free. Is that correct? That is correct. And if that's not enough of an incentive, it also features the amazing and talented Mr. Philip Slatter in a prominent role as the eye. So... But name musicals, name, name, name musical numbers. I, I, I did want to put in a musical number where I did some dancing and singing, but... Uh, yeah, it, it was just Dave, too Dave, good uh, to go in the film, really. Exerted di- directorial rights. <laughs> no, but do check that out. Um, if you've got any thoughts on that, we'd love to hear it. And do, if you like it, then do spread the word. Similarly with this podcast, if you like it, then do spread the word. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. Any ideas you have for future episodes linked to numbers, so do let us know your suggestions. Next up... No surprises, it's episode 15. Thanks for listening and take care.